Well, good morning again, everyone. <clears throat> Always a blessing to come and share the word of God with all of you. And I pray that at the end of um, our time today, yes, I always pray for the people of God that you know, your affection for Christ would have increased. Let me start by asking you this. What is love? It's a question that across the centuries, many have asked that question. What do we understand what love is? And because the, of the way our culture have has been talking about love in all aspects of our lives, sometimes our understanding of love has also been affected. For many of us, sometimes when we think about love, our uh, instinct, uh, we instinctively think of love as something that, like a sentimental emotion, you know, something that happens in our hearts that involves our feelings. Or that love, you know, is about affirming or supporting everything about the other person, you know, as the popular catchphrase goes, which I'm sure you have heard of, you know, love is love. One of the things that I do when I do pre-marriage counseling with uh, young couples, uh, sometimes I'll ask them this, you know, you, you say you love one another, you know. Tell me what you mean by that. What do you mean when you say you love him? What do you mean when you say you love her? And then sometimes the answer that I get, you know, the focus of that love in that case is how the other person makes you feel when they're together. You know, love in that case is how the other person makes you feel. Well, what is love? How does scripture talk about love, in particular, God's love? And so we will turn our eyes upon scripture and see what God has to say. And today we come to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is like the climax of what Paul has been talking about over the last few chapters. So it's like the peak of the mountain that he's been getting his readers there you know, as we go along in the last few chapters. And from this mountaintop, then we can survey what Paul has been doing as he builds up to this. Right? We see one, of, one glorious aspect of God's love here. So hopefully you have your Bible still with you from Romans chapter 8. Just keep your hands open there. I will read that passage again because it is such a wonderful passage. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Let me read that passage again, and then we will look at what Paul says uh, in this passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me say a quick prayer and then we'll look at this passage. Father, we come before you. We thank you that we can once again gather as your people to hear from you. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, as you can see, not a very long passage. But hopefully, as was read to you, you sense Paul's feeling, his excitement, and his affection for everything that he has been talking about. Right, look at verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? What are these things that he's been talking about? Well, I believe he's been talking about this all the way since Romans chapter 3. Right? In Romans chapter 118 onwards, he's been talking about how Jews and Gentiles, we're all sinful before God. No one is righteous before God. We all deserve only God's condemnation. But from Romans 3.21 onwards, he lays out the gospel. He declares that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Despite our sinfulness, despite the wrath that we deserve from God, God declares us righteous through faith alone in Christ alone. And this idea that we're justified by faith alone is not new. Something that is already there in the Old Testament. And this also means that when we are justified by faith, by faith alone, means that we are now born into the realm of Christ. Physically, we are born into the realm of Adam. Now, because of the work of Christ, we are transferred into the realm of Christ under grace, under his reign. And so we were under sin, under death, in slavery to our sin. But through Christ, we are rescued from that realm. We are now under Jesus in the kingdom of Christ, where grace rules. And Christ is the king of this kingdom. And in this realm, we're led by the Spirit as the children of God. And even though we go through suffering here on earth, the Holy Spirit comes and intercedes on our behalf, groans together with us through our suffering as we look forward to the new creation. God has done all these things for us. All these things. And this is the God of the universe we're talking about. And that's why in verse 32, Paul comes and says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And this, the, that's the whole point of this whole section. This God is for us. As we read also in Isaiah chapter 41, Yahweh is for his people. He's there to protect them. He's saying to them, you are my people. I'm your God. I will protect you. I will be with you. It's the same thing here. This God is for us. This God of the universe, eternally powerful, in control of all things, this God is for us. And Paul's been talking about this for the past five chapters. And if this God is for us, who can be against us? What is there in all of creation can, that can stand against us if that God is for us? Nothing. Nothing. And th that's where he brings out two main points about what that means. If this God is for, is for us, what does that mean? Number one, no one can condemn us. No one can condemn us, verse 32 to 34. Look, look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God did not spare Jesus Christ for us, do you think he will withhold any blessing from us? He's already given us the greatest treasure in all of the universe, in the person of Jesus. Of course he'll graciously give us all things. Now, we may not have all things right now, but he will give us all things in due time when the new creation comes. 
we're inheriting the new heavens and the new earth. And all the blessings that come with our salvation will be given to us. God doesn't hold anything back from us. Why would He hold anything back when He's already given us His Son? And that means nobody can come to us and accuse us of being unworthy of receiving God's blessing. That's Paul's point here. No one can condemn us. Look at verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. God the judge, God of the universe, he has already justified us through Christ, declared us righteous in his sight. Who can come and condemn us after that? No one. Christ died for us, rose again for us. Not only that, now he's at the right hand of God, advocating, interceding for us. Right? Again, goes all the way back to what Paul has been talking about from Romans chapter 3. Through the atonement of Christ, right, received by faith alone, we are justified. We have Christ now before God, advocating for us. I mean, we can't get a better lawyer than Jesus, isn't it, before God? The verdict has already been rendered for us because of what Christ has done. No one can condemn us. Now, what, why is Paul saying this? Why is he bringing this up? Because, well, we often get accusations of our, our unworthiness from different places. Sometimes this condemnation comes from within us, from ourselves, or it can come from outside of us, from other people. Let me give you a few quick obvious examples and then maybe less obvious ones. It's not surprising that we do receive condemnation from many parts of our world today, especially for our views on sexuality, right? People don't like what we believe. And Christians, we've been labeled and called many different names, right? We've been called bigots, intolerant, unloving, judgmental, on and on. And to be fair, some Christians, they do deserve that. But for many Christians, many Christians, whose desire is only to be faithful to the Scriptures, to be faithful to what God has said in the Scriptures, these labels, these name-calling, brings a lot of anguish and pain, isn't it? Who likes to be called those things? Nobody likes to, to be condemned. But the question is, do they have a case against us before God? Before God? No, they don't. No one can condemn us because God has already justified us in Christ. We stand before God righteous because of what Christ has done. Who can bring any charge against us? God himself has justified us. But what happens when Satan comes and Satan accuses us? Sometimes he comes and he does that through people. Sometimes he does that through our own self-talk, how we talk about ourselves, how we think about ourselves. Uh, he, he comes and brings accusations against us. You know, he says, you are such an unworthy, unlovely person. God cannot be possibly pleased with you. Maybe that's exactly how you think about yourself. Maybe you are condemning yourself because of what you have done or what has happened to you. And as a result, you feel unworthy of God's love. You feel deeply inside of you that of your own sinfulness, of your own unworthiness and shame. And you think to yourself, huh, how can someone love someone like me? How can God love me? Satan 
uses that to fuel your thoughts and to cause you to doubt God's goodness. One famous example in history is Martin Luther. Right? In his writings, he often talks about his experience of Satan coming to him and accusing him and condemning him. And to Luther, Satan was a constant tormentor in his life. Listen to what he says in one of his writings. He says, The devil plagues me at times too, creating such a tempest and fire over for a forgivable sin that I find I do not know what to do. Those are his tactics with sin. He's a virtuoso and a champion when it comes to sin and death, reproaching a person in a very masterful manner. Maybe that's exactly what's happening to some of you here. Where you can't move past your sin, move past shame of something that's happened to you. You have tried to repent many times. You can't move past your past relationships or divorce, your shame because of what has happened. Maybe you feel shame and guilt over a sin that you committed many years ago. Maybe you feel that you could have been or should have been better parents to your children. Maybe you feel that you've been could have been a better child to your parents, a better husband, better wife, better friend. Basically, Satan takes anything and everything and uses that to condemn us before God. And sometimes Satan doesn't even have to do anything because we will do that ourselves. And we feel unworthy of God's love, filled with shame, riddled with guilt. Even though we've tried so hard to repent, tried our hardest, and we still feel like we're unworthy. We feel like we have not done enough. And we say, well, I'm not good enough. I should be better. I can be better. I wish I was better. I wish I did things differently. Every time that happens, our sense of guilt increases and we condemn ourselves. What do we do at that point? Listen to what Luther says. This is what he says to do. So when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where, that, where he is, there I shall be also. So what do we do? What do we do? We say to Satan, we say to ourselves, no one can condemn me because God has justified me through Jesus Christ. Christ is my advocate before God. He has died and rose again for my justification. No one can condemn me because God is for us. If this God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? He's the one who justified us. No one can condemn us because Christ intercedes on our behalf. Not even ourselves. God is for us. And so on days that are particularly hard, days where you struggle with this accusation, with these thoughts in your mind, and you struggle because of the kind of accusations thrown at you from the outside world because of your Christian faith, be reminded of this truth. God is for us. And if God is for us, no one can condemn us. No one can condemn us. That's point number one. Let's look at the second point that Paul brings up. If God is for us, nothing can separate us from God. Nothing can separate us from God. So Paul talks about how no one can bring any charge against us, any accusation against God's people. 
he moves on to talk about situations and circumstances in our life. No situation, no circumstance in our lives will be able to separate us from God. Right? Look at verse 35 and 36. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Nothing that happens here on earth can separate us from God. And during the times when we are going through hardship, through suffering, it can be very easy for us to be tempted to think that God doesn't care about us or God has abandoned us. That cannot be further from the truth. Nothing, nothing separates us from the love of Christ in God. And God's people throughout history have always endured suffering and hardship. This is not new. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. In fact, actually, to be, it's part and parcel of all life. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You will go through suffering in this life. And suffering can sometimes be such a lonely experience, which adds to the anguish, adds to the hardship. But the difference is knowing who is there with you through our sufferings, through your hardships. The Apostle Paul himself, he went through tremendous suffering. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You'll be on the screen behind me. He says, this is about himself. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was bitten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and night in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone, often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone, often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. He's been in danger of many things, as you can see. And then he quotes Psalm 44, which is talking about God's people suffering because of their faith going through persecution, facing death all day long. This is not new. And when Paul goes through this list of things in his rhetorical question in verse 35, this is not hypothetical for him. He experienced all of that. And coming through out of those experiences, he says, there's nothing that separates us from the love that Christ has for us. In fact, he goes further than that. Look at verse 37. Paul says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Now, have you paused and thought a little bit about what that means? To be more than conquerors? I mean, it's a bit of a strange thing. I mean, how can someone be more than conquerors? I mean, if you're a conqueror, you've already defeated, you've already vanquished your enemies. I mean, what more can you say? How can you defeat and conquer someone even more? Well, if you look at the context, he's talking about hardships, trials, troubles, tribulations that Christians go through. Now, from a humanly perspective, these things from a humanly perspective, even from the perspective of Satan himself, these are the things that should be pushing us away from God. 
Now, if you think about it, again, humanly speaking, Christians persecuted for our faith. So the logical thinking is that Christians would stop following Christ when that happens. If you stop following Christ, then you won't be persecuted. When we go through hardship and trouble, the earthly thinking will be to question, why does God allow these things to happen to us? Cause us to doubt God. And this is the line of reasoning many atheists have taken to choose to not believe in God. But instead of pushing us away from God, how have Christians across the centuries faced these struggles and hardships? You see, for Christians across the centuries, the very things that are supposed to be pushing us away from God are the very things that draw us closer to God. And what happens is that Christians completely subvert the purpose and the logical thinking of these hardships and suffering. The very suffering, the very persecution that people think will push us away from God, instead pushes us closer to God. And in that way, we are more than conquerors. Because the same circumstance, the same circumstance that's supposed to push us away from God draws us closer to God. We are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from God. And time and time again, we hear testimonies of Christians doing exactly just that. And one example I came across recently is um, this missionary, Alan Francis Gardner. Born in 1794, he eventually joined the Royal Navy. He rose to the rank of commander, but he left the Navy, became a missionary, and he's determined to reach the world for Christ, unreached world for Christ. So he sailed to the hardest places of the world trying to preach Christ. Many of his journeys as a result of that, they were not very successful. He tried. His last journey was with six other men. They traveled to the, south, to the tip of South America, right at the bottom, 1851. Because of fierce weather, hostile reception, a series of logistical problems, they crashed and they slowly died one by one from starvation. They had no food. Later on, they found his journal. In some of his final journal entries, he wrote this. He says, Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. That heaven and love and Christ, which means one and the same divine thing, were in my heart. One of his last entries was this. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Those are written as he lay dying of starvation. What else in all of creation can give someone that kind of assurance, that kind of a view of life? What else? We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. More than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from God. Paul ends this section with what is in my mind one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. He says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot get any more comprehensive than that. 
Paul is basically saying that's literally nothing in all creation, nothing in all creation that can separate us from God's love. Nothing. Now, this passage sometimes has been used to defend the idea or the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And when people sometimes, when they use this phrase or when you use a doctrine like that, sometimes, you know, Christians, we have a particular image or scenario in mind, right? They think the doctrine works something like this, where let's say you have someone, let's call him Billy. If you're Billy, it's a coincidence, but this is an example, Billy. Uh, Billy, who said the sinner's prayer when he was 10 years old, he said it with sincerity, he believed that, you know, and then after that, Billy attended church once in a while over the next few years. And then unfortunately, when he graduated from high school and university, he just stopped attending church and he stopped believing in Christ. But as the doctrine goes, once saved, always saved, isn't it? Billy said the pr pr sinner's prayer when he was 10 with a sincere heart, so he's definitely saved. Doesn't really matter if his life never really changed. Doesn't really matter if he eventually stopped believing in God because, well, once saved, always saved, isn't it? Nothing separates us from God. Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't usually use that term. What I prefer to use and what many scholars have preferred to use is the term perseverance of the saints, or more specifically, perseverance of God in the saints. Now, the way to help us think about this is to take Romans 8 as a whole. So if you just scan through your Bible very quickly in Romans 8 as a whole, what Romans... Romans 8 says that when we believe in Christ, we belong to Christ, God gives us His Spirit to dwell in us, to transform us to be more like Jesus, to be led by the Spirit. That's what we read at the beginning of Romans 8. And those who are in Christ, we live according to the Spirit. And that's where we see our lives change as we follow Christ. Because God works in and through us by His Spirit to transform us. We do not stay the same person. This same spirit helps us in our suffering, helps us in our weaknesses. And it is through this work of the God's spirit in us that God perseveres us in our faith. Right? This is where the phrase perseverance of God in the saints come from. It's the idea that when you are saved, when you believe in Christ, when you are saved, God sends his spirit into us to indwell us, changes us, transforming us, and helps us to persevere in our faith to the end. Our lives are changed and transformed. And our li we live lives that bear witness to that. That means that the way we live our lives matter. Because it displays and demonstrates God's work in our hearts. It is through God's work in us that we persevere in our faith to the end. You see, the phrase sometimes, once saved, always saved, seems to imply the way we live our lives does not matter. That's why I think the more accurate phrase is the perseverance of God in the saints. Because that's where we see God's hand in our lives, transforming us, changing us, holding us tightly to himself, and as a result, we persevere on. And so God's love for us is not one where he affirms everything about us and everything about who we are. God's love for us is infinitely more powerful than that. God's love for us changes and transforms us. And in the end, we are secure in our salvation, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, because Jesus holds tightly 
to us. And that's why Paul comes and says in this passage with such emphatic tone that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because if this God is for us, if this God of the universe is for us, who can stand against us? No one can condemn us. No one can separate us from God. And one of the greatest examples who lived this out is the Apostle Paul himself. Now, if you think about his life and if you know anything about Paul's life, it seems like there's nothing that phases Paul. Nothing that phases Paul after he became a follower of Christ. Right? He sets his life goal to go out, preach the gospel to the nations whenever he can. Plenty of people have tried to stop him, but they fail. Right? They throw Paul in prison because they don't want him to preach the gospel. Well, guess what? He converts all the prison guards. All right, okay, let's find an excuse to murder him. And Paul comes and says, well, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To depart is to, to depart is to be with Christ, which is far better. He's not afraid of dying. Okay, you know what? No, no, we can't kill him. Let's put him in house arrest. Let's put him there. And then what does he do? He goes and writes letters to different churches about the gospel. Nothing faces him. No matter what happens to him, he turns all and all situation around him, all circumstances around him, to serve God's purpose. He is more than a conqueror. What you're going through in your life right now, what are you going through in your life right now that you can turn it around and draw you closer to God? How can you be more than a conqueror in your situation, in your life right now? Think about that. Pray about that. But more importantly, more importantly, remember that it is not up to your own strength and willpower. Look at the verse again. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Only through Christ that we can be more than conquerors. Because if you think about what happened to Christ, think about what God did. God took the greatest evil act in all of human history. And he conquered that through the death and resurrection of his son. Not only did he conquer it, he used the very thing that was evil right at its core, right? The murder of the son of God, evil to its core. And he turns that to be the greatest saving act in all of history. Jesus Christ was more than a conqueror through his death and resurrection, turning that evil act of his murder to be the greatest story of redemption for us. It is through Christ, only through Christ, that we can do the same. And if this God is for us, who can be against us? No one can condemn us. No one can separate us from God. And that's why Paul ends this section with such emphatic declaration that there's nothing, literally nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray. Father, we come before you and we are amazed at your love shown to us through Christ. 
Lord, at times where we struggle in our life, where we forget this gospel message or we accuse ourselves of being unworthy of your blessing, turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us to look to him and through him, help us to know that we are more than conquerors. Lord, we look to you and we are once again always amazed at the gospel message, this good news that you have reconciled us back to you. And now we stand before you righteous, not because of what we have done, because of what Christ has done. And so, Father, we ask and pray that no matter what we're going through, good days, bad days, hard days, turn our eyes upon Jesus, turn our minds upon Christ, knowing that in him we are more than conquerors. Nothing can condemn us, nothing can separate us from you. Father, we ask and pray that you help us to do that, not for our own glory, but for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.